0: And welcome to Carmelite Conversations. This is Francis Harry, your host. On October 15th, 2023, the Carmelites were celebrating the solemnity of St. Teresa of Avila. And Deacon Mark Danis, who is a member of the Secular Order of Discalced Carmelites, gave a wonderful reflection on St. Teresa of Avila and her famous quote, You must have a very determined determination. He talks about what is this determination? What are we to be so determined about? And also, how do we reconcile this idea of determined determination um, with God's will and how we abandon ourselves to God's will? This is an excellent reflection that ties in many points, so I highly recommend it, and I'm glad you're here to enjoy the fruits of this reflection, and may St. Teresa of Avila intercede for all of us.
1: Last month I offered a reflection on St. John of the Cross's statement that faith is the only proximate means to union with God. This month, this day, in honor of St. Teresa of Avila, I'd like to reflect on her equally well known statement You must have a very determined determination. If you're not familiar with it as a Carmelite, you will be very soon. It is one of her more popular sayings. Reflecting on this statement led me to two questions. First, What is it that we are to be so determined about? Secondly, how do I reconcile this idea of determined determination with my statement last month that ultimately we must abandon ourselves to God's will? Here's the actual quote on determination. It's from the 21st chapter of The Way of Perfection. Teresa writes, as I say... It is most important, all important indeed, that they should begin well by making an earnest and most determined resolve, determination, not to halt until they reach their goal, whatever may come, whatever may happen to them, however hard they may have to labor, whoever may complain of them, whether they reach their goal or die on the road, or have no heart to confront the trials which they meet whether they, the very world rather, dissolves before them, end quote. Today's reflection is actually drawn from the sixth mansion or dwelling, St. Teresa's seven interior castles, some of you are familiar, some not. So as a reminder, or perhaps insight for those who are not familiar, the various stages of Teresa's spiritual framework are outlined in these seven dwellings, six seven mansions. The sixth mansion is where the soul experiences union. This precedes the spiritual marriage which occurs in the seventh mansion. However, it is also where the soul undergoes some of its most difficult trials along the spiritual journey. That's because these trials are predominantly of an interior nature. I'd like to put some context around the severity, the intensity of these trials by offering this insight, again from St. Teresa. It's actually from the first chapter of the sixth mansion of the interior castles. Oh God, help me, what interior and exterior trials the soul suffers before entering the seventh dwelling place. Sometimes I fear if a soul knew beforehand, its natural weakness would find it most difficult to have the determination to suffer and pass through these trials, no matter what blessings were represented to it. Here we see the use of the word determination in a far different way. These words were written well after the way of perfection. So we understand what Mother Teresa is saying here is that if some souls knew the degree of purification, the intensity of what we're called to, they might well choose to wait for purgatory. But since we are all here on a Sunday night honoring Mother Teresa and praying together, we should consider what we need to be so determined about. We seem to be determined enough to be here. Let's look at what St. Teresa says about Jesus' own desire that we undergo the circumstances that will require this determination. She writes again, The spouse does not look at the soul's great desires that the betrothal spiritual marriage take place, for he still wants it to desire this more. And he wants the betrothal to take place at a cost, but this is a great blessing. Now, we all know what it is like to wait for something that we desire, and how our desire only increases with the delay of the receipt of that which we desire. Jesus is also aware of this. We won't have time to go through all the trials that St. Teresa outlines, but I wanted to just highlight a few and show how these trials actually do work to our benefit. The first trial St. Teresa mentions is about friends and family who turn against us. She indicates that at times this trial of gossip and backbiting became so great, she was afraid there would be no one for whom she could go or with whom she could go to confession. These were, by the way, her friends in Carmel. From Psalm 55 we read a clear articulation of what she must have experienced. It is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. But it is you, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to hold sweet converse together. Within God's house, we walked in fellowship. It is in this same section where St. Teresa indicates that praise is just as painful as condemnation from those that we encounter in Carmel. Experience, she writes, makes the soul see clearly that people are as quick to say good things as bad, and so pays no more attention to the good things than to the bad. Second, because it has been more enlightened by the Lord that no good thing comes from itself but is given by his majesty, and it turns to praise God, forgetful that it has had any part to play just as if it had seen the gift in another person. Again, to explain Teresa's saying here, be only concerned about what God thinks, and recognize that all of these things come from God, as we'll discover at the end of the reflection, will be the primary objective. Finally, turning to the criticism from other people and what she gained from it, St. Teresa talks about the trials of being misunderstood, ridiculed, and gossiped about. Blame, she writes, does not intimidate the soul, but strengthens it. It feels that those who persecute it do not offend God, rather that his majesty permits persecutions for the benefit of the soul. The response is to be concerned only about what God thinks, not to focus on what others might say, and even less what we might think of ourselves, but to refer everything to God. The next great trial that Teresa mentions is bodily illness. She describes that this can be the most difficult of trials, especially when it is accompanied by interior struggles. These interior struggles, these trials, are the assault on one's faith, which leads to our questioning God's providence and his mercy. This is what moves these trials to the interior and makes them so difficult. She mentions the difficulty of not being understood also by spiritual directors, or worse, being guided by spiritual directors who do not understand the ways of the interior life. She writes that even, it even appears as though the devil has been given license by God so that the soul might be made to think it is rejected by God. She goes on to explain that she does not know what to compare all of this experience to other than the oppression of those who suffer in hell. For no consolation, she writes, is allowed in the midst of this tempest. Again, as it relates to confessors and spiritual directors, she comes to understand that there's nothing that they can advise her to minimize what the soul is experiencing. She explains these interior sufferings are the greatest of all trials. Recall, as St. John of the Cross discusses, that the Lord moves from the exterior to the interior, from the bodily and material and even mental suffering to the deepest interior suffering of the soul, that which is intended to purify the spirit. Here the soul is exposed to its nothingness. or as St. Teresa describes it, we come to understand what miserable things we are. In addition, she says, the soul doesn't think it has any love of God or that it ever had any. If it had done some good or if His Majesty had granted it some favor, all of this seems to have been dreamed up or fancied. As for its sins, it sees them all too clearly and now understands how they have impeded its ability to love. The greatest trial endured in the spiritual journey is to reach the understanding of how much God loves us. To desire to return that love and to come to the realization alone that we do not have the capacity to do so. This is the most painful phase in the purification of our love. The soul, if it prays, Teresa says, finds no consolation either in mental or vocal prayer. The soul will go about gloomy and ill tempered, and yes, God allows this as it increases our desire. The only remedy, and she makes this clear, not to remove it, but to be able to endure this phase, is to engage in acts of charity. Here the importance of obedience is revealed. To fulfill our obligations daily is our only response. But it's no longer about performing simple acts of prayer, sacrifice, works of charity. These must all be done in love. The question is, whose love A reminder, this suffering comes to the soul only so that it may enter the glory of the seventh dwelling place, which is worth reading. I want to go from the first chapter of the interior castles to the 11th and final chapter. Just as a point of reference, St. Teresa wrote 11 chapters of the 27 chapters in total in the interior castles in the sixth mansion. So there's a great deal of emphasis placed on what happens in that sixth mansion. It is here that we get answers to the questions that I posed at the beginning of this reflection. What must we have determined determination for? Or what Teresa now in the sixth mansion refers to as courage? See, our determined determination got us through what John of the Cross referred to as the active portion of our responsibilities in the purification of both sense and spirit. But they won't take us to the next phase. Now it's courage. And it's appropriate that the language should change here. We need this courage, not for suffering, but for this transformation in love. The best quote I've ever heard uttered, or in this case written, about the word courage is actually penned by Ernest Hemingway who said, courage is grace under pressure. This is exactly what is happening at this stage of the spiritual journey. The soul is no longer in control. It needs courage simply to wait for the grace that will arrive. The reason courage and now this word abandonment are the appropriate response for this phase of journey is that it is us now like Christ, who are suspended between heaven and earth. Here's how Teresa described it. The soul sees that it is like a person hanging who cannot support himself on any earthly thing, nor can it ascend to heaven. John of the Cross uses this exact reference in Book Two of the Dark Night. The soul feels suspended between heaven and earth, intensely desiring, loving God, ready to die for him a thousand deaths, but feeling certain that it has been rejected and abandoned by him. John considers this the greatest affliction. This is our experience of the crucifixion. We thirst with a thirst that will not be quenched in this life. We desire to love God, but we know that we don't have the capacity for it. But where do we find it? The love we must come to love with is the very love of Jesus Christ Himself, living and acting in us. And what we now abandon ourselves to is the final vestiges of purification of anything in us that is not His love. I've said from this Amber and in other forums that ultimately our transformation in love is to be in a place where every thought, every word, every deed is simply a manifestation of love. And for that to be true, it has to be Jesus' love. And everything within us has to be removed. In closing, I just want to read what I think is one of the best descriptions of this condition. And since we are still in October and didn't have the chance to honor Theresa of the zoo, I want to quote from her act of oblation to merciful love, just a small portion. Time is nothing in your eyes, O God. In a single day is like a thousand years. You can then, in one instant, prepare me to appear before you. In order to live in one single act of perfect love, I offer myself as a victim of holocaust to your merciful love asking you to consume me incessantly, allowing the waves of infinite tenderness shut up within you to overflow into my soul, and that thus I may become a martyr of your love, O my God. May this martyrdom, after having prepared me to appear before you, finally cause me to die, and may my soul take its flight without any delay into the internal embrace of your merciful love. I want, O my beloved, at each beat of my heart to renew this offering to you an infinite number of times. Until the shadows having disappeared, I may be able to tell you of my love in an eternal face to face.